Welcome to the Penelope Voyages podcast. Why Penelope when I'm Robin? Well, that is a good question, but a long story. One we'll have to save for later. In advance of this Veterans Day, I have two stories that I'd like to share on the podcast. The first, the focus of this episode, will be about Mr. Bill Giambroni. Mr. Giambroni and I had the opportunity to sit and talk many years ago, and his story was truly inspirational and touching, and it led me to write a story of my own. I could have been Barbara. When I was born, the lawyer representing my folks for the adoption called them to share the news. They were parents. The story they tell is that they hung up, sat on the bed next to each other, inhaled the word parent, and then began to contemplate what my name would be. They hadn't discussed naming me prior to that moment, fearful that getting their hopes up and making plans would somehow end in disappointment. They also had no idea if I would be a boy or a girl. There were no baby books or internet name generators, but they did have Jewish tradition to guide them. The truth is, Many cultures and religions have long-standing practices when it comes to naming a child. Some name for saints, others for godparents, some for living relatives, yet others for birth order, and, as with my name and our tradition, some name to honor those who have died. Elie Wiesel once said, A name has its own history and its own memory. It connects beings with their origins. To retrace its path is then to embark on an adventure in which the destiny of a single word becomes one with that of a community. It is to undertake a passionate and enriching quest for all those who may live in your name. My parents told me that, at least according to their understanding, loved ones chose a relative based on their virtue and positive characteristics, and often because they led long and purposeful lives. In my family, on my father's side, that meant there was one who they were certain would never receive the honor. And so, both feeling very strongly it was an honor he deserved, I became his namesake. My father's uncle Benjamin was the youngest of Minnie and Joseph Derniburski's six children. The first four of these children, including my grandpa Harry, were born in Lithuania and immigrated with their parents to the United States sometime around 1910. Anna and Benjamin, however, were both born after the family settled in Worcester, Massachusetts. Benjamin arrived in the world on December 1, 1916. At some point, and it is quite the mystery as to when, why, and how, The Derniburski family decided to change their last name, which, in retrospect, I think was a smart move. Apparently, though, not all of them got the same memo because some of them became Derns and the rest became Daners. It really makes a mess of our family tree. So I'm an adopted Dern named for a Daner who died early. Quite the tongue twister. And to further complicate matters, my name is not Barbara. Oftentimes, just the first letter was used to designate the connection between names, but I wasn't named Barbara or Betty or Brenda, 
all names that my parents had contemplated. They, I guess, just didn't like what the bees had to offer. So they decided to focus on my Hebrew name, and there they found one they felt fit. Bracha, which means blessing, which covered the B for Benjamin. Mazel tov, but not so fast. There was still the matter of an English name. They skipped the B and went right to the next letter in the Hebrew name, R or Reish. And though neither of them can really remember why Robin, they both do remember liking it. All I can say is that this jumble of a thought process explains an awful lot about my upbringing. While working on a lineage project in grade school, I remember being told that I was named for my father's Uncle Benjamin. Since I had never heard of him, I did have quite a few questions. Lacking the genes to connect, but having the name to link me to that family history, it did make me feel authentic, legitimate. But like me, little was known about Benjamin Daner. His name, it sat on a branch of a tree, but his story, it was unfinished or unstarted or just erased. All anyone could provide was that he died fighting during World War II, and they told me that he was shot down. Until 2012, I guess there was just no point in giving it another thought. My mother always calls at precisely the wrong moment. I could be stepping into the shower or cooking dinner or rushing kids to practice and it never fails. The phone will ring. That wintry Sunday in 2012 was no exception. I was in the grocery store line waiting to check out and of course she called. I sent her to voicemail twice before picking up and then I told her I couldn't talk. But my mom's brain is unable to comprehend that phrase, so she just continued. Something about a rummage sale, something about a book, something about veterans. And so I said, great, sounds good, mom, and I'll call you when I get home. I didn't call back. Listening to my mom recount her day at the rummage sale was not a priority, so... Predictably, she forced my dad to dial from his phone, and predictably, I was wrist deep in flour and cookie dough at the time. Ask her why she didn't call, I could hear my mother whisper in the background. But they both seemed eager to talk to me, which is a bit unusual. So I used my chin to put the phone on speaker and I listened. First, they asked me if I needed any silverware because they found a mostly nope, complete set nope, for a good nope. Deflated but not defeated, they then told me about a bargain book bin. They had picked up a few books, including one for me. I rolled my eyes. It was a volume of Jewish war veterans. Uncle Benjamin's name was listed. They would send it my way. I hung up and tried to get back to baking, but that need, that need to be authentic and to honor him, it kind of hijacked my internal gear. I felt guilty for the years of not thinking of him, not finding him. I shoved the cookie dough into a Ziploc and I opened my laptop. 
Good detective novels, spy movies, documentaries that seek to solve cold cases, they all intrigue me. The slow build to a sweeping twist is something I am ever grateful for. I once took a course at the University of Alaska Anchorage that was singularly focused on Alfred Hitchcock films. Professor Crawford had a laser pointer that he would gleefully and spasmatically use to point out all of the MacGuffins. We would all gasp or cheer depending on the peculiarity of each fact. While this newfound sense of responsibility that I had toward Benjamin was a propelling force, I can't deny that deep curiosity and the thrill of uncovering secrets, they were equal drivers. I would have been happy for a fedora. Like any good sleuth, I was typing his name into the search box, but thinking three steps ahead. I might need to call the Department of Veterans Affairs in the morning. Perhaps I'd need to join up on an ancestry website. Maybe the book my parents planned to send would have a hidden clue. I hit enter, resolute that I would follow down the leads no matter how long it took. And it took two seconds. There he was. I was actually looking at his picture. Lieutenant Benjamin Daner, bombardier for the Sparta Wilkins crew. All of them there alongside him. They were assigned to the 515th Squadron and manned a B-24. Their plane went down over Romania on July 3rd, 1944. If you've ever met someone and sensed an instant and irrefutable connection, you might understand how I felt studying his face. The way his notably reserved smile rose slightly higher to his right I was immediately endeared. I searched for traces of my father in his eyes and his long neck and his hairline and his jaw. I found a little bit more of my Uncle George. As irrational as it was, I searched for me in him, too. I found it. I can't explain it, but I found it in the look he was giving. That felt like it was meant for me alone. The photo also captured an obviously solid bond between these men and their confidence. It all felt familiar, as if I had been the one to snap the picture myself. I had to learn more. I, I was the first of my living relatives to know Benjamin. Immediately, I was possessive, wanting more of the story before sharing him. Like an archaeologist at a dig, I wanted to brush through to him gently and methodically, not wanting to overlook or disturb any detail that might deepen my understanding of this man. Pondering what to search next, I settled on Sparta Wilkins. What came back astonished me. Unbelievably, Bill Giambroni, the crew's radio operator, the man with the widest smile in the picture, and the one who I couldn't help but smile back at, he had survived the crash. And even more remarkable, he was still alive. There was no question. I was tracking down Mr. Giambroni. A quick name search provided a phone number. My excitement, it was bursting like a garden sprinkler just turned on full blast. But I would have to wait for morning to call. I didn't sleep 
I scripted the call in my head, I baked the cookies and ate a bunch of them, and then at 5 a.m. Alaska time, I figured it was late enough in the morning for an East Coast call. The phone rang and rang, no machine. I called again later that day, several times later that week, no answer. Perhaps he was on vacation. I continued reading everything I could find about the crew, about him, about Romanian aerial combat during World War II. I knew my family felt neglected, but they were throwing me apples and chocolate every so often, so I didn't worry much about it. And the following week, I called again, and still no answer. I found an email address that I convinced myself belonged to Mr. Giambroni's nephew, so I wrote. It bounced. Next, I decided I would reach out to a reporter who I noticed had written two articles about the Sparta Wilkins crew. After a week of non-stop inbox refresh, his reply finally appeared. He gave me a different email address for the nephew, but warned it was a few years old. He wished me luck. I gave it a try. And then it came. A connection. Ken was welcoming and open from the start. I had so many questions, and he never hesitated with answers. When I told him that we, most coincidentally, had a trip to Hershey Park planned and wanted to make a detour to meet his Uncle Bill, he was more jubilant than me. His words conveyed the love and pride that he and his entire family had for Bill. This family moved me long before I met them. The date was set, 2 p.m. at the Jefferson Apartments in Norristown, Pennsylvania. I couldn't believe it. Soon I would meet the man who in 1944, in a B-24 over Romania, was the last to see my great-uncle Benjamin alive. Driving through his neighborhood, blue-collar suburban Philly to the core, reminded me of Crafton or Garfield and of Worcester. The sense of place put me back in the womb of my childhood. The people sitting on their front stoops, the corner pharmacy, brooms sweeping walkways. I was pretty sure I even saw a buckeye tree. We weren't far from Valley Forge. How many times had I been there? I hung out of the car window trying to get closer to it all. I wanted to stop, open the trunk, and stuff it full with everything I saw. Comprehending that he had been this close to me all along was really a worthless endeavor. And all along, while we had no memories of Benjamin, Bill dedicated his life to keeping the memory of each of his crewmates alive. His apartment building was dated, but I didn't have much time to assess it before two cars pulled up. Ken and Mr. Giambroni's son and his lucky namesake, Bill Jr. They were headed toward us with open arms and a box of fresh donuts that Ken's mom had sent along from the bakery where she worked. My nine-year-old daughter was prepped. She understood the purpose of the visit and was refreshingly inquisitive. My three-year-old son, he just needed to pee. Our introduction quickly turned utilitarian as we all rushed from the sun and breeze into a long, dark hallway which led to the apartment. When the door opened, the smile that greeted me was the one I gazed upon zoomed in at 175% many times over. 
Hello, hello, come in, come in, he said in a voice that matched that brilliant smile. My husband grabbed my son and squeezed past us, heading in to find a bathroom, having calculated that an accident could really spoil the moment. Mr. Giambroni was quick and needed no explanation. He just chuckled as they pushed by. He had my arm and led me into his small and humble space. I had Alaskan salmon, and I think he had everything from his tiny kitchen out on the table for us. The man was incredibly gracious. He lifted a box of chocolates from the spread and offered them to my daughter with a nod. The box wasn't open, so for a moment I think she thought she was getting all of the Russell Stovers. It is possible that was his intention. I opened it and lifted the lid and told her she could have one. Mr. Giambroni then, with no transition and the ease of someone who had told his stories more times than could be counted, led us on a tour of what he had hanging on his walls and stashed in his drawers. It was a treasure hunt. The six of us, yes, even my three-year-old, we stood there taking up every last square foot available, riveted. He started with a photo of his wife, Cecilia, Tessie as he called her. He lost himself for a short time in his words. She had died in 2009. They had been married for 67 years, having wed before he was sent off to the European theater. Together, they raised three sons, had seven grandchildren, and there were great-grandchildren as well. He leaned in to tell me they really had enjoyed going to the casinos together. Their life, it was modest, but it seemed full. His work as a barber, it provided all they needed, he said. Ken grinned and let us know that his Uncle Bill still cut hair for his neighbors in the building. But Bill qualified, only on Tuesdays, and only for some extra cash to play the ponies. At 91, Mr. Giambroni had command of his memory, his clippers, and his still deep love for his wife. His eyes twinkled a bit as he added that Tessie was a top-notch card player. My daughter chimed in immediately, saying she liked to play cards too, and then my son said he did also, but really he just liked copying his sister. With that, Mr. Giambroni said he had just the thing to show us. He shuffled to his bedroom and emerged with the most extraordinary deck of cards I'll ever lay my eyes on. They were hand-drawn on paper with incredible detail, crafted and given to him by a fellow POW in Romania. He said POW life was pretty dull. Cards helped pass the time. I couldn't believe they were in my hands and not behind glass in the Smithsonian. I asked if I could take pictures. I sat down in one chair to inspect the deck more closely and Bill took the seat right next to me. The kids came in close, curled around our feet. Michael, Bill Jr. and Ken, they maneuvered their bodies onto the flowered cushions of the small couch that was directly opposite us. And then Bill launched right into the story of the Romanian princess. Princess Catherine abhorred the Nazis and disapproved of Romania's ties to them. Romania's hands were somewhat forced, though, as the Nazis needed their oil and refineries to fuel their war machine. They were going to take what they required one way or another. So, with little else that she could do, she made it her mission to see that the POWs were well cared for, and she visited them often, 
He said she brought them peaches and cigarettes. My son, Isaac, named for my great-uncle Irving, Benjamin's brother, and for Michael's great-uncle Irving, a military photographer who just happened to be on hand to capture the images from what occurred on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor, Isaac asked what we were all thinking. Really? Really a real princess? Bill laughed. Of course, he said. Was it time for intermission yet? There was so much to process already, and we hadn't even begun talking about the Sparta Wilkins crew. I was living my afternoon in a National Geographic documentary. Mr. Giambroni, he then allowed himself to sink back into his chair, and he sighed. It was a signal to us to adjust our moods, and he began. Out of Italy that day, it was supposed to be their final the 25th mission and then maybe home for a while, this time to Romania, a train yard in their sights. One last takeoff and land, perhaps back before night. Bill worked the radio, and as a waste gunner, too, barely old enough to drink, but helping see the Allies through. Fifty calibers, engine noise, repairs quickly needed, shimmying to the problem and having succeeded, he turned to head back to swap for his spot. But he never made it. Enemy fighters. They were hit. They were shot. The dive, then thick smoke. No time to blame. No response raised survival instincts. They came. He reached for a chute. He elbowed forward toward the hatch. He thought he had time, but was sucked out too fast. His clip left undone. Planes circling past. He knew they could see him, but Bill remained steadfast. He said it was quiet. He breathed deep and latched in. A pull of the cord. Lift. Awaiting fate to begin. His head no doubt swerving from the thoughts of a soldier to the thoughts of a man just wanting a chance to grow older. For him, it was shock. It was only two others survived. It was capture and to the spot where lifeless bodies lied. It was boots lost. Please, I'll take yours, removed gingerly, sombered soul from the chore. It was a silent last thank you, tempting the why you, not me. It was good buddies gone, upended reality. To a village near Bucharest in a cart led by mule, to a basement in a town hall, to a commandeered school. As luck would have it, the war was nearing its end. But the Nazis, relentless, attempted to dig in. The Romanians joined the Allies. The Nazis planned bombings. The villagers left. The POWs given warnings.
Many would flee, many in injured state. So Bill and some others stayed to help evacuate. They took doors from buildings and fashioned stretchers to be used to move those left to the shelter, to safety. A bronze star he held proudly, given to pay a hero some honor. Deserved by this strong, humble man who you would want in your corner. In my research, I found pictures. They were from a church. The bodies they were taken there, the dog tags recorded in their cemetery manifest. The soldiers were buried in a special section reserved for the priests, and they had been there for quite some time before being brought back home. His name, my great-uncle Benjamin, it was there in the manifest. It was real, and it was indelible for me. Bill spent his entire life paying tribute to those men of the Sparta Wilkins crew. He told their story to any group who would listen, to newspaper reporters, to filmmakers. At the time I met him, both Morrison and Morgan, the other two survivors, had passed away, and he was the last one. He had one last thing to show me. It was given to him by a film crew and a retired Air Force colonel. It was a piece of fuselage from the plane. It had been verified before being presented to him. In all those years since July 3rd, 1944, it had been used as part of a chicken coop fence. I held it for a long time. It brought me as close as I thought I might ever be to my great uncle Benjamin. The legacy of those men, of my uncle, lived on because of Bill. One of the articles about him mentioned how he would plant 75 flags around his apartment building each year on Memorial Day to commemorate their loss. But I'm here to tell you, not a day went by in Bill's life when he didn't take all of those men with him. When it came time for us to leave, he gave me a long hug and said goodbye. My tears had been relentless, but even more so in that moment. I was nothing, not one thing compared to the man in front of me. But I was not diminished in his presence. I was awed. I thanked him for honoring my uncle and all the crew over so many years. And then I told him that I was, as a Jew, indebted to him. He held me tight and tears rolled down his cheeks as well. He patted my hair like a grandfather would. 
on the way out, I noticed the picture, the one that I first found on the internet, hanging there by the door. Bill isn't with us anymore to tell his story. But both Bill and Benjamin have me now, Bracha. If I am certain about any purpose in my life, it is to ensure that their lives continue to inspire. Mr. Giambroni's story has been told before in different ways by many people. I was able to find a great deal of material on the web, and I want to thank those outlets for helping me form this narrative. The Milford Beacon, the Philadelphia Inquirer and Dan Rubin, the Army Air Corps' 376BG.com site, WorldWar2.ro forum, and the makers and producers of Knights of the Sky, Air War Over Romania. Thank you for listening today. Join me again when Penelope voyages.